This is Sam Kreider. And this is Amy Kreider. And this is the last behind-the-scenes bonus interview about our novel, Cal's the Gospel of Columba. And today we're going to be interviewing the author of Kells, Amy Kreider. Because we have news about the future of this book, it's going to be published in the fall of 2023 by the University of New Orleans Press. So what made you decide to do Kells as a podcast? I decided to do this audio version on the podcast because I had given up on the idea that it would ever be published as a book. It had been rejected by numerous agents over a period of many years, and I wanted to do something with the story, and finally I decided, let's just adapt it for the podcast. So how then did it come about that it is finally going to be published? Yes, it was amazing. We were in the middle of producing the podcast audio version of the book when I did get a publication offer. What happened was... In 2021, my first novel was published, Disorder, and the University of New Orleans Press published Disorder, and I asked them, are you interested in seeing any of my other work? And they said, yes, we like your work very much, and we would be open to considering any of your other novels. So I pitched Kells to them. I did not expect them to be interested And they were interested and said, yes, we'd like to read it. I submitted it to them, and they very quickly accepted it and said they would be publishing it. Will there be any differences between the published book and the audio version? Yes, there will be. I am working with an editor. Most of the changes will be in part four. That will change quite a bit. What happened was I wrote part one in third person originally, decided to make it first person. And if you've listened to the book now, you'll know this. If you haven't, this is a spoiler. But the first person narration of part one is really a letter or a memoir that the main character, Kanatak, is writing to another character, Kayla. And at the end of part one, I decided, well, that's the end of his letter. So in part four, when I go back to Kanatak's story, I made those parts third person again. But it's a bit jarring to go from first person to third person. It doesn't feel like it makes that much sense to make that switch. So I'm going to change those parts of part four from third person back to first person and find some other reason why they're in first person. When you write something in first person, there's the question of who is this person talking to and why? Not every author attempts to answer that question. Very often you just write something in first person and there's no reason why. They're they're not addressing a particular person. But I wanted there to be what's called a diegetic reason for this to be in first person, that it's within the story that he's telling the story to someone. So one thing I'll be working on with the editor is addressing that question, well, who is he talking to now? Is he still writing the same letter? Is he writing a different letter to another character? Which then gives rise to the question, who can read at this time in history? Some ideas that came up were, for example, Morgan, the woman that he's attracted to, 
but she probably doesn't know how to read, so he's not going to be writing her a letter. Another small thing I'm going to change. In part one, he's teaching the character Edith how to write, and he's dictating to her while she's writing. And I'm going to try to change that because you don't learn to write by taking dictation. You copy another manuscript. You copy something that's already been written to learn how to form letters. So I'm going to try to change that to be a bit more realistic for how she could be learning how to write instead of him just dictating some passages to her. It'll be hard because I like that scene. They're outdoors. There's activity going on. So how to change that is a bit of a challenge, but I probably will change that. I imagine you've run into a, a lot of questions of trying to balance realism versus what's good storytelling throughout the whole book. That's very true. I wanted to be historically accurate as far as I could because I did do a great deal of research for this book. But there is storytelling and there are liberties that you take. The whole trip that Kayla takes, <laughs> would this trip, could, could it possibly have happened? You do want to tell a story. So there is that balance between historical accuracy and storytelling. There are also things that might seem unhistorical that might be accurate that you don't expect. For example, I show the monks breaking their rules all the time. They're talking to each other frequently, and they had a vow of silence. So is that inaccurate? Well, you find when you do the research, all these lists of punishments of monks for breaking the rules. So clearly, they were breaking the rules all the time. So I don't think it was inaccurate for me to portray that. Another thing that might have seemed inaccurate is that I portray them eating meat, and we tend to think that monks were vegetarians at this time. But the archaeological evidence shows that they didn't eat meat. There were bones in their refuse pits and that sort of thing. So there's that balance, too, of the balance between the reader's expectations and what might have actually happened. And we do have uh, an earlier interview we did where you talked some more about how you actually came to write the book and your, your research. So you can, look in, you can look in the podcast feed and maybe we'll put an, a link in the show notes to find uh, earlier uh, episodes of Behind the Scenes when we talked about, when we talked about the, the writing of the book. So did anything uh, really surprise you in doing the audio version of Gals? One thing that surprised me was how emotional the story was at times. I tend to think of myself as backing away from emotion. I tend to avoid conflict and emotion in my personal life and in my writing. There's certainly that uh, relationship between your personality and your writing so that if you're someone who avoids emotion and conflict, then you avoid it in your writing as well. And I found that the book was emotional and had some very emotional scenes, particularly with uh, Kayla's story. I found that Baird became pretty emotional in his performance. That was a nice surprise to see that there was that element to the story. In some sense, it's an, it's an intellectual story. It's about about writing 
a book about crafting something, but it's also these characters all feel very strongly about these things and they're they're trying to to show the glory of God and to show their what they're learning about the world and about what the world means to them. So there's a lot of strong feelings uh, in in the story. Yes, and I I think too that's very accurate to the time because it seems like when you read certain medieval sources, letters that still exist, Alcuin's letters, some of them still exist. People did express themselves in very emotional terms, and a lot of their religious feelings were very emotional, very passionate. And so you do have the sense when you read the research and writing at the time, this sense of an emotional life, even among people who historically are considered intellectuals and the intellectuals of their day, there's still this passionate emotional element to their lives. That makes me makes me think about how a lot of the other characters in the book are historical people, aren't they? Yes, most of the characters who have a name are people that we know really existed. Conatok was a scribe on Iona at the time that the book takes place. We don't know anything else about him except that he was there. Kayla also. I made him a slave who becomes a monk. We don't know that, but he did become abbot of Iona. Lutgard was Charlemagne's wife. Fastrada was one of his wives. His children, we all know. We know all about his children. Not all about, but we know about some of his children. The missionary in Phrygia was a real missionary in Phrygia. I changed his name slightly because it was too similar to Lutgard. And I didn't want there to be confusion between her name and his name. So many of the... Isaac, the merchant who travels, buying things for Charlemagne, real guy. We know who he was, a Jewish merchant who worked for Charlemagne. So many of the characters, even though we don't know anything about them in their real lives, they were real people whose names still exist in the research and history. I think that's one of the things that's interesting about historical fiction, both as a reader and I imagine as a writer, is you get a chance to sort of fill in those gaps about, we know this person existed, but you can speculate about, well, what was their life like? What, how did they come to be in this place to become a historical figure? So when you decided to, to do the story as an audio book, how did you go about finding the, uh, the voice actors? I've been doing theater for a number of years in Chicago. I produced a play in 2017 called Lida, and that was where I met Jeff Breitman, who was a friend of the director's. I met Baird Brucher in 2015 when he appeared in a reading of one of my plays, and I think... He was also connected to the director of Lida, so that was how I became reacquainted with him. Lindsay Summers I met through another actress, and she came to do a table reading of one of my plays. So they're all people I met through doing theater in Chicago that I've worked with for a number of years now. And I really like to rely on them because they're very talented They're very good cold readers. 
They didn't rehearse very much. They're just very talented, and I love using them as much as I can. It was an interesting experience working with recording all these these different people because we did record them in different ways. Like Jeff came here and recorded at the same place where we're recording this interview now, and Lindsay also recorded some here. But then Baird recorded on his own and sent us his audio tracks, and then Lindsay also did some of hers as well, uh, remotely. Yeah, it was quite a logistical challenge to get all of these recordings done. And I know you had the challenge as the sound engineer, that each of the performers had a different style, had different challenges in editing their performance, things that you needed to filter or not filter, or even speed up and slow down a bit, or eliminate some of the pauses. They all breathed very differently, as I understand. So it was an interesting challenge for you to edit three very different performances. And people were using different microphones and were recording in, in different spaces. So I learned, I learned a lot about using uh, digital editing, particularly Adobe Audition. My background in doing sound and uh, audio editing is... Previously, about 40 years out of date, I started doing it in the days of reel-to-reel recorders and literally cutting and taping audio tape together. So I've, I've had to get up to the 21st century in doing the audio engineering for this, for this project. We've made use of various sources of free audio sound. Uh, the BBC has a, has a large library of audio that's available for non-commercial use. And uh, there are a lot of interesting free resources for, for audio out there. Some people, there are commercial sites up, but also there are some people who just like to record sound and put it up on the web for people to use. So what's coming up for the podcast after this? We're going to have a talk about my previous novel, Disorder. I'll just talk a little bit about how I came to write it and how it came to be published. Then we're going to go on a hiatus for the most part, but we might do a documentary that you made about libraries, but that's something that might be coming up maybe a few months down the road. And then I don't have plans right now for what will come next, but we will continue to do the podcast in the future after this hiatus. I would also like to give a shout out to our listeners. Now, SoundCloud, which is the host of the podcast, rarely shows me the name of the person listening. It's only if you have a personal account that it it will show me your name. It does show me the city that people are in, usually. Once in a while, it just says United States and doesn't even show me the city. But most of the time, it shows me the cities. And I want to thank our listeners over the past year of this long journey, and it's been exactly a year since we posted the first episode. So I want to thank our listeners in Columbus, Ohio, Boardman, Oregon, Melbourne, Australia, Surrey Hills, Australia, Frankfurt, Germany, Ypsilanti, Michigan, New York City, recent new listener, thank you, New Orleans, Helsinki, Finland, Richardson, Texas, Ashburn, Virginia, Brussels, Belgium, Motley, Minnesota, 
Fraser Park, California, Layton, Utah, Madison, Wisconsin, Indianapolis, Indiana, Seattle, Washington, Boston, Massachusetts, Aurora, Colorado, Cortland Manor, New York, Moscow, Russia, Norwood, Massachusetts, San Diego, California, Decatur, Illinois, San Francisco, California, Elgin, Illinois, Denver, Colorado, Washington, D.C., Miami, Florida, Irvington, New Jersey, Atlanta, Georgia, and Austin, Texas, and especially our listeners in Chicago, Illinois. That is the bulk of our audience. We are local to Chicago. Thank you for your support in the city where we are doing this podcast. If you'd like to write to us, send us a fan letter, suggestions for podcast possibilities. Our email address is continuousdreamtheater at gmail.com. Theater spelled R-E rather than E-R. We'd love to hear from you. And you can also always go to our webpage, www.continuousdream.com, and there's an email link there, isn't there? Yes, there is. Well, thank you for listening. This wraps our production of Kells, the Gospel of Columba. Another slight change to the book is that the title of the book will be Kells, a novel of the 8th century, rather than Kells, the Gospel of Columba. So look for that in your bookstores starting late next fall. Keep an eye on your RSS feed for more of the Continuous Stream podcasts to come. Thank you.